Our first Bible reading is Psalm 145, which can be found on page 539 of the Church Bibles. Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works and I will proclaim of your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches, watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Our second reading tonight is the opening chapter of John's Gospel, which can be found on page 911 of the Church Bibles and uh, on the screen too. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave a right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. 
the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of a one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, David. Good evening, church. Nice to see you. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. I haven't met you. We are in a series called Gazing at God's Goodness. And tonight I have the privilege of talking about God's grace, a God who is gracious. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, the, the ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. The ultimate test of our spirituality, our relationship with God, is the, the measure of our amazement at this concept of grace. Our amazement that the the all-holy, all-powerful God should choose to lavish us with his grace and his favor. That that amazement that, that God loves us and all we do is offend him, abuse him, give him the middle finger, and yet he keeps on loving us. That is grace. It's amazing. That the amazement that that God not just saves us by his grace, but he, he keeps us by his grace. He holds on to us by his grace. It's continual grace from start to finish. That is amazing. I hope you're amazed by grace, that God is gracious. What does that word mean, gracious? The word gracious, it means, it means kind. It means courteous. It means considerate, especially to those people who are difficult or horrible. You know, you say, oh, oh, Peter was, he was so gracious to that very, very rude man. Or you say, oh, oh, Sarah, she was so gracious when that friend treated her so badly. To be gracious means that you experience kindness and consider you just, you just don't deserve that. That, that is grace. I love the, the true story of a, a family trip to, to Disney World. So in this family, there's three kids, and the middle kid is adopted. They adopted her when she was eight years old. Let's call her Sally. Now, now Sally's previous family, her her foster family, they loved her very much, but but they never quite integrated her into the biological family. So this foster family, they went to Disney World every single year. They never took Sally with her. Every year, Sally did not go to Disney World. She was sent off to a family friend. And so Sally thought she'd either done something wrong or she wasn't wanted. And Sally had heard about Disney World. She'd seen photos of Disney World. She'd read all the stories about Disney World, but she'd never, ever gone to Disney World. 
And so when Tim and Lucy adopted Sally, and when Tim and Lucy sat down with the three kids and said, hey kids, we're going to Disney World. You can imagine what's going through Sally's head. And it's almost from that day onwards, her, her behavior changed. She suddenly became disobedient. She was so rude. She stole. She lied. She was mean. She was vicious. And the parents think, what is going on? And so dad sat down with Sally and Sally said, oh, here we go. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? I knew this was coming. And, and Tim's thinking, that never even crossed my mind. And then he understood her, her, her disobedience because if Sally had spent her whole life being good or trying to be good but never been taken, well, why not try to be as bad as you possibly can be? Because then you've got a reason why you're not taken. And then Tim sat down with Sally and said, okay, let me ask, some, ask you some questions. Are we a family? Yes, she said, we're a family. And are you part of this family? Yes, she said. Well, of course you're coming to Disney World. Not because you've earned it or not because you've been good, but just because you're family. And so they went to Disney World. And the first night of Disney World, in the hotel room, Sally's there with a stuffed unicorn, and she's snuggling up to Dad. She says, it's amazing. Well, she says, Daddy, Daddy, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I had been good. It was because I'm yours. It wasn't because I had been good. It was because I'm yours. And that is grace. That is God's outrageous grace. It's got absolutely nothing to do with you being good. And it's got everything to do with you belonging to God. Because I hope you know that the grounds of God's grace, the grounds, the reason for God's grace is that he delights in you. Proverbs 1 talks about like a diamond. That's how God sees you. He sees you as created by him, known by him, loved by him, precious in his sight. You are treasured. That's how God sees you. He delights in you. And that's why he pours his grace on you. Not because you've been good. Not because you've earned it, not because you're amazing, but just because he is gracious and he delights in you. That's the grounds of grace. I define grace as this. Grace is God's costly, undeserved favor. God's costly, undeserved favor. Let's start with that word favor. It's a beautiful word. Favor is, is when someone of of higher status, stoops low to someone of lower status and shows kindness that is just not deserved. That, that's to show favor. Someone superior stooping low to someone who's inferior in kindness and giving them what they don't deserve. That is favor. We just looked at the book of Genesis, haven't we? And, and it, Jacob found favor in Esau's eyes. Remember that story? Jacob is about to be reunited with Esau after 20 years. And last time they saw each other, Jacob had stolen his birthright, stolen his blessing, and just wronged him. So Jacob just not going asking for Esau to be fair. He asks seeking favor, and that's what he gets. That's grace. 
Remember the Joseph Potiphar story? It says Joseph found favor. That's the same word grace. He found favor in the eyes of Potiphar. So Potiphar is the superior one. He is the boss. Joseph is a lowly house servant. But Potiphar shows grace to this lowly house servant called Joseph and, and lifts him from the pit. Or, or Ruth who gets to glean in Boaz's field. That, that is his favor. That is favor. It's somebody stooping low to bless you. Now, now we are the creatures. We're not the creator. We're, we're the lowly ones. We're not the superior ones. That is God. God is superior. God is glorious. Now, we don't acknowledge him. We don't worship him. But God stoops low. God stoops low, ultimately, in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8 is on the screen. I hope you know this. He says, for you know, it's from the Corinthian church, but but 7 p.m., do you know this? Do you know the grace, the kindness, the favor of our Lord Jesus Christ? This is his grace, that, that though Jesus was rich, for all eternity, Jesus was rich. He was seated at the right hand of his Father. He was wanting for nothing. He had everything. He was rich, yet, it says, for your sake and for my sake, for our sake. Jesus chose to become poor, to stoop low, to humble himself, to take on flesh, to humble himself, to die on a cross, so that we, it says, we through his poverty might become rich. Rich in God's eyes, a relationship with God, being called his precious children. That is the grace of Jesus. What did you do? Nothing. What did he do? Everything. Or John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. Here it is, full of grace. That's who Jesus is, full of grace, overflowing with grace, superabundant grace. In his essence, he is just grace upon grace upon grace. Max Licardo says this, our, our Savior kneels down and gazes upon the darkest acts of our lives. But rather than recall in horror, our Savior reaches out in kindness and says, I can clean that if you want. And from the basin of his grace, he scoops a palm full of mercy and washes all of your sin. That is grace, God stooping low. It's not about you asking for God to be fair, it's you seeking favor. Grace is God's costly, undeserved favor, undeserved. That's the thing about grace, you don't deserve it. But the problem is that in, in our whole worldview, we, we're just wired to think about earning stuff and deserving stuff. So if you work an eight-hour day, you get paid a wage, but you, you deserve that, you've earned that, it's called a wage. If you compete in a race and, and you win the race and you beat other people, well, well, you win a prize because you deserve that. If you do something amazing at work, you might get an award. But you've achieved that. You've earned that. And that's our mindset. Earning, achieving, deserving. But what if you never worked a single hour or minute but were paid? What if you didn't beat anybody, but you got a prize? What about if you never achieved anything, but 
you were given an award. You didn't earn it. You didn't achieve it. You didn't win it. You don't deserve it, but you're given it. That is grace. And God is gracious, not because you deserve it. And as soon as you think that you've done just a smidgen to deserve anything from God, grace is no longer grace. It's costly. Costs you nothing, but costs God everything. You ever been to a work event, a conference perhaps, where you're given a, a brand paper bag full of just all this free stuff that is all junk and it's all... I mean, you might keep a pen or two, but the rest of it is just, it's just cheap junk, isn't it? Imagine you go to a conference and they hand you a brown paper bag, and in, in that bag there is a bag full of diamonds, a house, and a yacht, and a ticket for around-the-world flights for as long as you want to fly. And it's all free. You go, wow, that costs somebody something. Please don't think that grace was cheap. It was so costly. It cost God his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's grace. It's God's costly, undeserved favor. It's uniquely Christian, you know. You can make yourself Buddhist. You can make yourself Muslim. But you can't make yourself Christian. Only grace can make you a Christian. So here's the verse. I want to unpack it. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. It's on the screen. And the, the God of all grace, literally over, overflowing grace, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Because that one verse has all three aspects of God's grace. The God who calls us into his eternal glory. The God who deals with, with our sin. We call that his saving grace. But it continues. That the God who will restore you. The God who refines you. The God who chips away at you. Who transforms you. We call that his sanctifying grace. But then it says that the God will make you strong, firm and steadfast. God will strengthen you and support you. We call that his sustaining grace. And that is a Christian life from start to finish. Starts with grace, continues with grace, ends with grace. Let's start with saving grace. Uh, th this is, this is the, the grace that we often think about. You know, amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That is saving grace. You might not know that amazing grace is the most popular song to have at weddings. And time and time again, couples say, I want to have amazing grace. It's a great song. But often a, a, a wedding couple come to me and say, I want to have amazing grace, but I want to change the words for the first verse. I don't like that word wretch. It's a bit too negative. So can we change it to amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a person like me. But the problem is that we are wretches. That's the whole point about grace. Grace is not amazing if you are somebody. It's only amazing if you're a wretch. And, and so you'll never understand grace unless you understand your need for grace. You'll never understand grace unless you actually recognize that I'm a wretch and you're a wretch. I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. 
And a classic passage is Ephesians 2. This is not a picture of a particularly decadent society. It's just all of us without grace. Paul says, as for you, as for me, we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. He says, without Christ, without grace, we were all dead, spiritually dead, incapable of saving ourselves because we're dead in our transgressions and our sins. Uh, the word for transgression is a overstepping a boundary, like a, a javelin thrower who throws a javelin. It's a good throw, but he oversteps the, the line. It's a foul. Uh, that, is, that is us. No matter how much good we do, we, we cross a boundary. We do things that we're not supposed to do, and that's called a transgression. Uh, the word for sin is that you miss the mark, you fall short of the perfect standard, like an, an archer who fires an arrow, but it just doesn't quite reach the target. You do good things, but you're not perfect. And that's what we're like. We, we do the wrong thing, and we fail to do the right thing. And we can't save ourselves. And more than that, we're told that we followed the ways of this world. We were seduced by the world and its thinking and its value systems. And we gratified the cravings of our flesh. Isn't that interesting? Uh, we, we live the way that we want to live and we feed all these cravings even though we know that it's not good for us and not good for other people. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That, that is who we were. Disobedient, deserving of wrath. But, says Paul, Ephesians 2 verse 4, but... Listen to this, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you've been saved. So, so God is the subject, not, not us. God is the one who pours his grace. It's not us earning it. God loves us, it says. God, in his great love, his, his inexplicable, his unconditional, his extravagant, persistent unfailing, constant love. A love that would send his own son to the cross to die for you, in his love for you, and because of his mercy on you, verse 4, he's rich in mercy, he's full of mercy, he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, and because of that, you are saved. Verse 5, but it's by grace. It's by grace you've been saved, verse 8. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, but please don't claim that your faith is all about you because this is not from yourself. It's a gift of God and not by works that no one can boast. So if you're here tonight and you're a believer in Jesus, you've been saved by grace, saved from death, saved from sin, saved from Satan, saved from slavery to the world, the flesh and the devil, saved from wrath, saved from condemnation. But it wasn't down to you. It was all down to God. Imagine that you're in massive, massive, massive debt. Half a million dollars in debt. And there's no way you can pay the debt. And, and someone comes up to you with a brown paper envelope and says, in this envelope, there's a half a million dollars in cash. I'm giving it to you for free. Just take it, pay off all your debts, and now live debt-free. And so you take it and pay off your debts, and you're debt-free. Let me ask you, did you spend the rest of your days bragging? Bragging about how you had the, the brains and the power to reach out your hand and take that half a million dollars. Good on me. 
spend the rest of your days bragging about the fact that you've saved some poor soul from being tempted by the half million dollars that they had. No, you spend the rest of your days just being thankful that somebody else paid the debt for you. You are debt-free, and it's got 0% to do with you and 100% to do with them. And that is some of your salvation. It's got nothing to do with you and everything to do with God. So how do you spot people who have understood saving grace? And the answer is that they are marked by humility. They're marked by humility, not pride. If we've grasped grace, we've got a right view of ourselves. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. You're just a sinner saved by grace. I am no better than you. I am no worse than you. That's what grace does. It's the leveler. You are no better. You are no worse than anybody else in this church building tonight. You can have the best degree. You can have the most impressive resume, the most high-powered job, the most sought-after house in the best suburb in Sydney. But in God's eyes, we are totally equal because of grace. My favorite illustration on grace, and I've used it many times, is the story, the true story of the, the high court judge and the criminal. Remember that story? The high court judge and the criminal kneeling at the communion rail in church on a Sunday morning, next to each other. And, and after the service, the pastor says to the high court judge, did you see, did you see who was next to you this morning at the communion rail? And the, the judge says, oh, yes, I did see. What a walking miracle of grace. And the pastor said, yeah, 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 he, he is a walking miracle of grace. I mean, he's a criminal who's been saved by our Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing walking miracle of grace. And the high court judge says, oh, I wasn't talking about the criminal. I was talking about me. I'm the walking miracle of grace because I was educated at Oxford University and I went to Eton School and I, I'm a great barrister and I've been given great intellect and great wealth and I'm successful and I'm somebody and yet God has been gracious to me and called me his child. I'm the walking miracle of grace. And that's what grace does. It, it stops you being puffed up and proud and thinking you're a somebody because there are no somebodies. We're just Precious children of God saved by grace. I long for this church to be a church where there is no hierarchy. Where everyone, everyone is treated equally regardless of age, stage, gender, sexuality, intellect, or qualifications. I long for this church to be a church where there's no pride, there's no self-importance. No one struts around this church thinking they are superior or a somebody. I long for this church to be a place where there's no boasting about all your good works, about how many hours you put in serving God or how much you give to God, because who cares? I long for this church to be a place where there's no legalism. No one goes home with a list of rules. I have to do this, and I have to do this, and I have to do this. I can't do this. And then we feel good about ourselves or feel terrible about ourselves. I long for this church to be a place where we don't measure success by numbers or programs, but by people whose lives have been transformed by grace. I long for this church to be a church that celebrates other churches and what they are doing rather than looking down and feeling smug about ourselves. I long for this church to be a place where no one, no one has low self-esteem, where no one feels worthless, 
because there's no one who's worthless here. You're loved, known, precious, and covered in grace. By grace you've been saved. Uh, someone said to me a few years ago, a person came to this church, they, they've been at their past church for about 10 years, and they said something like, said something like this, they said, I went to my last church every Sunday night, and I was told for 10 years, every Sunday I was told that I am wonderful, and I can do amazing things for God. And I left every Sunday night feeling a failure and feeling guilty. And I come to your church, and I'm told every single week I'm a sinner and a wretch, but I'm loved by God and precious to him and covered in grace. I'll leave every Sunday feeling amazing because I know that it's all about Jesus, not about me. That is grace. All about Jesus and not about you. But it's not just saving grace, not just a pardon, it's, it's the power. God, grace is not just God dealing with your sin. Grace is about God actually enabling you to sin no more. It's not a one-time event in your life. It's a continuous, ongoing, glorious, every moment event. And I think this is the biggest mistake of most Christians. Maybe you make it. We, we know that we start with grace. But once you've been saved... Too many of us actually subtly live by works. Saved by grace, live by works. Know Jesus died for you 2,000 years ago, knows that your sins are washed away, but day by day by day, it's all down to me. And so we start with grace, but once we're on the pitch, once we're in the team, once we're in church, we think that we have to do it all ourselves. And if you, if you try and do that, let me tell you, you will be utterly exhausted and you will be burdened and you will feel a failure constantly because it's graceless Christianity. Because grace doesn't just save you, it sanctifies you. God's sanctifying grace. John Newton says this, I'm not what I ought to be or how imperfect and deficient. I'm not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil and I would cleave to what is good. I'm not what I hope to be. Soon, soon shall I put off mortality and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet, though I'm not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I'm not what I once was. I'm no longer a slave to sin and a slave to Satan, and I can heartily say by the grace of God, I am what I am. That is God's sanctifying grace, God's constant grace in our life to chip away, to conform us and to transform us more into the lights of our Savior. Because your salvation is not a one-off event. God, it's like a, a wax. He gets a piece of wax and he's, he, he's creating a masterpiece in you. He's chipping away at you to conform every part of your life to be like Jesus. And the instrument in God's hand is called grace. That's how God changes you. I, I, I want to tell you, I want to tell you honestly, I never grasped this for many, many, many years as a Christian. I, I knew I'd been saved by grace, but I went to church every single week, and I, I was basically told, do this, do this, stop doing this, don't do this, and I went home with lists and lists and lists. I posted this on my wall of all the things that I must do to be a Christian. And I woke up every single morning feeling guilty and feeling burdened and feeling exhausted, thinking, I'm such a failure, I can't do this, God. Because it was graceless. Then I read Titus 2. 
For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Praise God for that. But the verse continues. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. What's the it? Grace. Grace teaches me to say no to ungodliness. Not my pastor, not my connectly, but grace teaches me. I still remember that, that the same grace that saved me is going to be at work in my life. It's going to be grace that changes me, grace that transforms me. It's going to be grace that teaches me to say no. No to my temper. No to my hatred. No to my bitterness. No to my holding on to grudges. No to my worldly ambitions. No to my worldly compromise. No to materialism. How do I say no? Not by writing a list of things to do and not to do, but by falling more in love with Jesus. Does that sound odd to you? <laughs> falling more in love with Jesus. Because Jesus is a person. He is the walking person of grace. And the more intimate I am with Jesus, the more I want to be like Jesus, and the more I get to be like Jesus, not that I have to be like him. I want to be, I choose to be. That is being transformed by grace. And grace teaches me to live self-controlled, upright, God loves. Why do I wake up each day and say, okay, today I desire, I desire to be patient and kind and self-controlled and forgiving and love that person who's hurt me and rejoice with other people's happiness. Why do I do that? Because of grace. The, the Puritans talked about the power of the new affections. The power of the new affections, not, not a new willpower, not a guilt trip, not an inspiring new worship song, but new affections. The greater your affection for the grace of Jesus, the more that you see Jesus and his glory, the more you want to live like him, the more that you will be transformed. So please don't go and write out lists of things to do and not to do. That's called legalistic trash. And please don't go home and come with your schemes and plans how to be a better Christian. That's called, be, called being a Pharisee. Please never despair thinking you can never change. You can't, but God can change you. By the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, as you fix your eyes on Jesus and you long to be more like him and long to honor him, you will change. But God will change you by his grace. Is that cheap? No, you don't want to sin anymore because you want to honor your Savior. And then lastly, and very briefly, God's sustaining grace. And I love this because God isn't just concerned about your soul. He's concerned about every part of your life. And there'll be times in life when you, you know that you are saved and that is wonderful. And you know that God is sanctifying you and that is wonderful. But there'll be times in your life where you're just in this season of sorrow and sadness and suffering and hurt and heartache and you're thinking, I can't do this. And God whispers, no, you can't do it. But my grace will sustain you. You can't do this, but my grace will sustain you. What's that verse? Through many dangers, tours and snares, I have already come. 
is grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. John Newton was inspired to write that verse by 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It says this, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take the thorn in my flesh away. Whatever that was, something in his life that it was deeply painful and deeply hurtful, and he's pleading with God, but God does not take it away. He says this, My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. I delight in insults. I delight in hardships. I delight in persecutions. I delight in difficulties. Why? Because when I'm weak, God's grace is sufficient. And when I'm weak, then I'm strong in the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you live by this. God may not give you gold, but he will give you grace. He will provide. He will protect. He will comfort. He will carry. He may not change your circumstances. He may choose to leave you in the pain to humble you, to remind you you're dependent on him, not on you. And in those moments of weaknesses, when you are weak, you see the strength of God profoundly. Let's be honest. We are weak as a church right now. I have less staff today than I had six years ago, and church is four times bigger. Humanly speaking, we are weak. But we're not, are we? Because God's grace is more than sufficient. And God will strengthen us and God will provide for us. And do you know what? I'm actually quite glad that we are weak because if we were feeling strong and we were feeling mighty and the British church was growing, the temptation would be what? Would be pride. Look at us. Look how we are growing the church. But when we are weak, that is when God chooses to work because his strength is sufficient and his grace is sufficient because it's about him and his glory, not about us and our plans. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what sorrows or heartaches you're going through. But I do know that God's grace is sufficient to sustain you. And when you are feeling the weakest of weeks, then you will feel the strength and the power and the grace of God like never before. I'm not into tattoos. But I think if I ever got one, this verse will be right up there. It's on the screen. I'll finish this one verse. James 4, verse 6. But God gives us more grace. But God gives us more grace. Isn't that a glorious truth? Let me pray. We pray in 1 Peter chapter 5 over 7 p.m. church. May the God of all grace, may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory in Christ, after we've suffered a little while, May he restore us and make us strong, firm, and steadfast for his glory and the praise of his gracious name. Amen.